Here we are again. I am here. My name is Emily Jane Fox. I am here with my wonderful co-host, Joe Hagan. Joe, made it to the first week in September, the last week, last unofficial week of summer. We did it, barely. It was a hellacious summer. Yeah, I can't. I I'm I'm usually am so sad the last week of summer before Labor Day. Crushingly sad because in New York it means the seasons are turning. I hate the cold weather. You're sort of back to back to school, back to work. Summer Fridays are over, the whole shebang. It feels absolutely no different this year. Part of it is because I'm in Los Angeles and the weather is the same almost the entire year, so I don't have that sadness. Right. But also, every day is exactly the same in quarantine land. The only real difference I feel at this point is with every passing moment, we are getting closer to the election, which brings me both a tremendous amount of excitement and an incredibly paralyzing amount of fear. And yet, here we are closer than ever. I am more nervous about the outcome of this election and the ability to vote in this election and people not telling the truth to pollsters as we lead up to it. I feel very nervous. How do you feel? I share all of your anxiety, but I recently spoke with uh, the Republican strategist Stuart Stevens, who I interviewed and who we're going to be hearing from in a little while. And he's one of these sort of like, uh, you know, consultant cowboys of Washington mm. who who's who has absolute confidence in what he's saying, mm. you know. Now, some of that could be bullshit, but these guys have numbers and they're plugged in and they're, you know, they've been through these uh, races before and they kind of have, uh, you know, nuggets of wisdom about what to think about and what to pay attention to. And one of the things that he observed and uh, pointed out to me is that after the conventions and after another week in which all of the images that they painted of Donald Trump as... No, actually, he's a really sensitive guy. No, actually, he has lots of people of color in his party and in his life. And all these sort of fictions they created. He spent the following week completely undoing all of them mm. by going completely bonkers and, and then trying to, you know, uh, show sympathy or something for this 17-year-old uh, supporter of his who, who shot two people. You know, he has created just more chaos and he his his reaction to chaos is to build more chaos on top of it and what what Stuart Stephen said to me which was interesting was is that the this race is remarkably stable you know despite all of the chaos and we're all living week to week and one chaotic thing after another and every day you wake up and turn on twitter or your cable news and you think the world's on fire freshly <laughs> right fresh hell and yet the numbers stay remarkably simple i mean it's uh, similar you know there biden is ahead and it's you know listen i toggle from week to week one week i feel like we're doomed and the next week i'm like no maybe we're not doomed and uh right now i'm going to hang on to the not doomed feeling and i'm hanging it all on uh, whatever Stuart Stevens is smoking, right? So let's just, uh, you know, for, for right now, I do notice that the polls did not change in Trump's favor after his convention and 
that's an interesting thing to observe. I agree that that's very interesting. I think that it's not just something that we've seen in this recent election cycle as things ramp up as we get closer to November. I feel like that has been the case since the last election, where the the sort of chaos that you and I feel and a lot of listeners, I'm sure, feel is baked in at this point. I think yeah. that at, at this point, we accept and expect this level of every day waking up to new horrors, new atrocities, inflammatory tweets, incendiary statements. I think that nothing seems to move the needle in either direction. And it's a really a, a wonderful thing to count on at this point where it's like, nothing nothing seems to matter it's it's a it's a crazy wonder of our time where well one thing does matter one thing does matter and i think that this is the thing that you pointed out early in our career as podcasts podcastists was that it's going to matter about uh, whether the voters are energized Mm. and whether they can get cast a legitimate vote totally and so you know this week we've already had a, a change in that situation where at one point all summer long Trump saying that mail-in voting is fraudulent now he's flipped around and realized that he's only shooting himself in the foot and he's like hey if you support me make sure you mail in your ballot as early as possible so that madness is whatever that is Um, but let me just point out a few interesting things that just came across the news in the last week that I think are also glimmers and signs of optimism. Okay. Old Navy just said that it will pay all of its employees for, you know, a full day of work. Uh, and if they will work at a polling station, Mm. right? How great, how patriotic is that? What a great thing. Um, I just saw Arnold Schwarzenegger, former governor of California, the Terminator. He, he's saying, uh, he will, um, pay uh, to reopen polling stations in the South that have been closed down due to whatever kind of financial reasons they may have been closed. Uh, We had the NBA offering its sports arenas Mm. as polling stations. I mean, that, if that can become a wave, right, if if corporations and wealthy people want to, you know, earn some goodwill and show some civic responsibility, they can expand uh, the possibility of voting. And I think if you do that, in this country, given what, you know, the, the way that the polls are, the way people feel, and, you know, if the number of people who want to vote can vote, that it's not going to work out in Donald Trump's favor. It's a sad state of affairs that you need companies like Old Navy and people like the governor to step in and save our democracy, that we have to count on individuals and individual companies to be doing the work that the government should be tripping over itself to do itself. But if that's where we are, that's the reality. We sort of have to meet the moment where it is. And I'm very happy that these private entities are stepping up and doing their part. I hope that that opens up a door for a number of companies to follow suit. I think that Going forward, Election Day should be a national holiday so that everyone can feel free to vote without having to fear the economic implications for what that would mean if they choose to miss an hour or so of work. Um, it makes it strikes me as both sad and uplifting, which I feel like is the general feeling of, of 2020. Anytime something 
good happens. You feel so grateful that something good is happening and so sad that something so small feels so out of the ordinary. The thing that I have been most taken with this week is there there was no traditional campaign, uh, post-convention bump. And it goes back to what you were saying about how the numbers have been remarkably steady. But I also think what it means is like there aren't going to be these big moments for something to overtake the race in a way that you saw in the year that Mitt Romney was running against President Obama, where you had that tape, the 48% tape right. that really markedly changed the state of the race. Um, you you saw that a number of times throughout history where there have been these, these real shifts in the perception of the race and in the polling numbers. I don't think that's going to happen this, this year. The, the traditional things that have happened to support in the past are not seeming to hold true this go around. And... I have always thought that since March, the defining feature of this election and the real thing that people are going to vote on is how they are feeling about the state of the pandemic and the economic fallout around the pandemic. But what we're starting to see for the first time is a little bit of a deviation, and that is President Trump preying on the law and order part of all of this. And it's the first time he sounded like he's on the offense During this campaign, he's not on the defense defending his administration's abysmal handling of COVID-19 and the very sorry state of the U.S. economy as a result of that. But I don't it's hard for me to think that there is going to be a huge voting block in this country who's going to feel that this law and order message is resonating and is more important than the state of the pandemic. That just feels like a crazy choice right. to make when well, when the world t- is on well, fire. But but it's clearly with you. sitting. It's it's hitting for people. I don't think that that's going to be the thing I, that's going to I think after people. Labor Day, that's going to change. I think it's about to change. Why? Uh, because it goes back to something you said. The fall has arrived. And all the usual rituals of the fall we expect to be having, we're not having. Mm. When everybody's kids come back from the school because there was a COVID outbreak, when they don't go to begin with and they're back in their you know, dining rooms and living rooms trying to teach their own children while doing their own job, when they're having more relatives call and say they got it or somebody they know got it, and they can't go watch any sporting events anymore. There's no football. Because, Can we just talk about this right. for a second? I know this yes. sounds, I grew up, in Philadelphia, I'm a huge Philadelphia Eagles fan. The Eagles are the closest thing to religion, really, that, that we had in the Fox household growing up. Fly, Eagles, fly. My dad's definitely listening to this and will be, I'll be the favorite child for a brief moment. And it feels like a huge hole in my life to not be able to watch football this September and not be able to... Even if there there were miraculously football, I usually go to the home opener with my dad and mom and cousins. And I can't fly home to go to a home opener, even if there there were a game. And so yeah. that just feels like for so many Americans, this is a, a football country. And not having your Sunday spent in front of the TV or at a stadium with your family, it just is such a hole 
if you're a football yep. fan and it's such a reminder of how abnormal things are and obviously parents and children will feel that every single day with school but not having this ritual every week you really are reminded of just how different things are and how worse things are because yeah. of the But see that's why I think that it's going to this whole thing about the law and order and the burning cities you know to the degree it's you know actually a, a real representation of what's actually going on in this country which I don't think it is um I think that what is going to boil down to is that uh, that Trump is not going to be able to um, escape the COVID narrative. This narrative is not going to recede. It's going to be the one that he has to live with and contend with. And his response to it and the damage that he's done by not responding to it is the ultimate thing. that, And he's trying to do everything he can to avoid it, right, and create alternate problems to make the race about but i don't think he'll be able to keep it up and have people believe it and already i don't think people totally believe it and buy it in fact people are already arguing that what happened in wisconsin is working in biden's favor Mm. um and he's there uh this week um you know talking to the family of uh the shooting uh, victim and uh you know trump went there and what did he do he walked through some rubble in his high heels that didn't do anything uh so you know the and I don't know if you know the high heels thing, but um, people can look it up. He was wearing uh, lifts in his shoes for some weird reason. I but I don't, that, <laughs> I don't think that I don't think that we call uh, them heels in the biz. OK, that, then I had it right. That's good. <laughs> um, so, you know, I do think that uh, as we get further into the fall and the ramifications of a society shut down and schools shut down really sink in, that's what it's going to turn on. And I think the Biden campaign is correctly keeping its eye on that, um, that it's the mismanagement of that and the f- lack of faith in science and the, you know, the ignorance and, the, you know, and in any case, uh, let me add one last bit of, you know, as long as I'm the optimist in, in chief of, uh, of today, let me just uh, say also that, you know, I think that um Trumpism as a brand is is based on being demonstrative about it. You know, it is its own team, uh, tribalistic thing. And when you see it, you it has an outsized impact on what you think is how strong it is as a political party. Whereas everybody who doesn't want to vote for that or likes Biden, you know, they don't there's not as many yard signs, maybe. Uh, out there for Biden, but he hasn't been president for four years. He's been the nominee for like three months. And I do think that we tend to see uh, how obnoxious Trump is on a week-to-week basis, how um, volatile and expressive his followers are, and mistake that for, uh, you know, it causes fear and it's meant to cause fear. The whole brand of Make America Great and these red hats is a belligerent, in your face, make noise, make you feel something when I'm around you. And I am trying my best not to um, give in to the anxiety and fear that that's meant to cause. Mm. And I think that, you know, when I look at these polls, we're not supposed to look at the polls. They're just snapshots of what's happening. But you know what? They keep being the same snapshot. So I'm not. I think that we should um, 
stay vigilant, but also not freak out too bad. I like that. That feels noble. That feels disciplined. <laughs> it that feels be calm. <laughs> I'm going to let you run with that. I'm going to feel yeah. my own feelings that are not that, but I'm going to I'm going to support you feeling that and I'm not going to pull you out of it cuz I like it in theory. You know, I have to live in I you know, I have to um I need to see a little pin prick of light at the end of this tunnel so that I can keep going down the tunnel. Bless you and your light. I like it. I want to bring it to more people. I'm going to keep my darkness to myself. And I want to listen to this interview that you had with Stuart Stevens. So let's let's get to it, shall we? Let's talk to Stuart. All right. Stuart Stevens, welcome to Inside the Hive. It's great to have you here on our podcast. Thanks for doing this. Oh, listen, man. Great to be here. Thank you. So we're here because your book, It Was All a Lie, How the Republican Party Became Donald Trump. Everybody's talking about it. And, uh, you know, I follow you on Twitter, so I had a, you know, it doesn't come as a uh, shocking revelation per se that you have jumped ship on the Trump Republican Party. And there's a little paragraph in your book that kind of sums it up neatly. Trump is the logical conclusion of what the Republican Party became over the last 50 or so years, a natural product of the seeds of race, self-deception, and anger that became the essence of the Republican Party. Trump isn't an aberration of the Republican Party. He is the Republican Party in a purified form. Um, well, yeah. Uh, okay, so <laughs> I got to tell you, though, that when I was my first thought is I've kind of known of you and I've known you a little bit over the years. You know, I've, you're a consultant. You're from the consultant world of, uh, you know, nominally of Washington. I think of you as like a kind of political cowboy, you know, kind of a craftsman of political storytelling. And I've never in my own life thought of cons- in my career as a journalist, uh, as consultants who people actually believed anything. You know, I always thought they were more interested in strategy than r- rigid beliefs, you know, and, so, and to some degree you cop to that in the book, you know, that winning was your main code, right? right? Yep. But, but tell me like, you know, but at some point you hit some kind of moral rock bottom, right, about what it is you're advocating for. And was there a moment, you know, what was the revelation? How, when did it come? And can well, you really- pinpoint like... Yeah, sure. About 10 o'clock on election night uh, in 2016 when Trump won. Um, yeah. Look, look I, I, um, I, I was a consultant. I was about winning. But I also believe that um, there was a core set of beliefs that, say, 90% of the party would have agreed on were fundamental, definitional, uh, non-negotiable for the Republican Party. So what were those? Um, personal responsibility, uh, character counts, uh, strong on Russia, um, deficit matters, fiscal sanity, uh, free trade, uh, uh, strongly pro-legal immigration. I mean, Ronald Reagan announced in front of the Statue of Liberty, signed a bill that made everybody in the country uh, before 1983 legal. So we'll have other disagreements about this or that, but these were fundamental uh, non-negotiable bedrock principles that define what it was to be a Republican. So Trump, it's not yeah. that the party now is drifted away from those. The party is actively against each of those. We, we are the, the character doesn't count party. 
we are the um, uh, to the left of Bernie Sanders on trade, as far as I can figure out any coherent policy to it. We're you know Putin's poodle, um, and uh, we're anti-immigration. I mean, to the degree now we've successfully closed all borders. Um, we can't even leave. Um, and uh, so then you say, okay, how does how does anybody abandon deeply held beliefs in three, four years? And I think the answer is you don't. It just means you didn't deeply hold them. Mm-hmm. Or your beliefs became negotiable uh, when your entire kind of livelihood, career, and modus operandi is under threat, right? Um, I mean, I think about, uh, you know, and I've, I've mentioned this a lot recently, and I've thought about it a lot recently. After uh, Mitt Romney lost to Barack Obama in 2012, uh, one of my assignments was to go on this National Review cruise ship and, oh, you know, after the election and spend a week on board while all these Republicans sort of uh, were hand-wringing and asking themselves what happened, what happened, how did it come to this? And of course, you know, it wasn't that big of a revelation, but they realized the tent had become too small and they weren't reaching out to you know, black and Latino voters, right? And I'll never forget that Kevin Hassett, who you probably know, economic advisor to Romney at the time, right. and part of the Trump administration, he was at a dinner table one night and everybody's asking, oh, what happened? What happened? He's like, well, minorities came out like crazy, he said. You know, white people didn't get to the polls. There were more African-Americans voting than we expected. So here was the problem, right? And so, you know, what happened is basically... Uh, you know, the they thought they saw the problem, but they didn't have any real sense of how to make that connection, right? And so they just went. Seems like they just went the other way. Is that what happened? Well, look. I mean, you go back to uh, the so-called autopsy, which is really you know kind of what you're referring to in a way that Ryan Priebus initiated. To his credit, it's hard to be self-critical of why is it we've lost a popular vote every year since '88 except 2004. Um, and the answers were pretty obvious, but still important to state. Uh, needed to appeal to more non-whites, needed to appeal to younger voters, needed to appeal to more women, particularly single women. Um, and now what's interesting, though, is these were presented not just as political necessities, but as a moral mandate. That if you deserve to be the governing party of this big, confusing, loud, changing country, you needed to reflect these things. So everybody agreed. And, you know, nodded, and then we got to Donald Trump, and we just threw it all out the window. Kind of with like an audible sigh of relief, like, thank God, we don't have to pretend we actually care about this stuff. We can still just win with white people. Um, right, yeah. And, and it just exposes how completely phony it was. Um, and it's, uh, look, I, I, in my view, political parties in our system just form a circuit breaker function. And the Republican Party never threw the circuit breaker. I, I, I think the beginning of the end was in December of 2015 when Trump came out for a Muslim ban. Okay, that's a religious test. So what should have happened is Ranch Priebus should have come out and said, uh, look, this is what he did when this guy Todd Aiken, who is the Republican Missouri nominee in 2012, said horrible things about women and rape. Ranch, to his credit, went out and said, we can't. Uh, stop this guy from running as a Republican. There's no mechanism to get him off the ballot. Uh, but we we can't tell people not to vote for him, but we're, as a party, I'm not going to support him. 
So it probably cost us a Senate seat, but a, a larger, more important point was made. So that's what should have happened when he came from, for religious tests. If we are anything, we are a constitutional party. And Donald Trump is, uh, this is unconstitutional. We can't tell you to not vote for Donald Trump. We can't tell Donald Trump not to run. But as long as I'm head of this party, as long as this party is, this, I, this is not what we will stand for. So maybe, yeah. Trump, maybe Trump wins, maybe Trump doesn't win. Um, but not to do that was weakness. And I think Trump looked at the Republican Party with sort of an animal instinct and realized that this is a group of weak people who don't really believe in anything except winning, except power. And if I can give them power, they will allow me to be whatever I want to be. And I think he was right. Man, that's grim. (laughs) This is Inside the Hive. Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Speaking of the National Review, they reviewed your book, as you as you saw, and no doubt um, felt like you wanted to respond to, but uh, Matthew Scully uh, was the writer, kind of trying to defend the party against some sort of history of coded racism, despite all the kind of glaring facts, like William F. Buckley, the founder of the magazine, having been a segregationist and so forth. But just can you give me your quick kind of uh, response to that Review because it goes into a little bit. He tries to defend Barry Goldwater, for instance. Right. As, you know, go ahead. Well, first, I've got to note. You know, it's really amazing that they uh, had Matthew write this review without noting the history of Matthew. I mean, Matthew was hired in the Romney campaign and was fired in the Romney campaign. I, I, I Matt Scully was removed from the Romney plane. He wrote a he was paid. Wait, removed life. from the plane? Yes, he was banned from the plane. Because he, he uh, wrote a uh, speech, was paid to write a speech, wrote one for the vice president, for, for Ryan, and wrote one for uh, for uh, Governor uh, Romney. Governor just wanted to go in another direction. I thought the speech was a good speech. Um, and, and Matt sort of was very bitter about it, very angry about it. But he has this history of writing negative pieces about people he worked with. Uh, so much so that when he was hired in 2012, Timothy Noah for the New Republic wrote this piece. I wish I'd read it at the time, predicting that he would attack me, saying, watch out, Stuart <laughs> Stevens, you've hired Matthew Scully. So, you know, he attacked Michael Gerson, who he worked with in the Bush campaign, who is as close to a saint as there is in this world. Um, so it's just, you know, it's just very uh, telling this is the kind of thing that the National Review would attack so-called mainstream media for, and uh, you know, mm-hmm. not disclosing that this person had this agenda. Now, I like Matthew. He's a very interesting, complicated guy. He's also uh, a, a prominent and very articulate and moving animal rights activist. 
He wrote a beautiful book called Dominion. Um, he's just a complicated guy. But to the larger question. Yeah, well, that sounds like it. <laughs> to, yeah, to the larger question of this, uh, to me, that review just sort of epitomized um, uh, the despair of the Republican Party to deny that there's racism. I mean, Matthew even denied that, that, that Reagan used welfare queen, which is, you know, just mm-hmm. a fact. Um, an inability to admit what the party is. And this is a national review that went out and did a famous cover story opposing Trump. So now they've just, for the most part, just kind of, you know, they've, they've been co-opted by Trump. They've adapted. And that's, that's you know, one of the, the key things that conservatives used to always criticize liberals for is situational ethics. And Trump is the classic example of conservatives just dealing in situational ethics. Everything is transactional. So I get this, and I will support this person who stands in the White House and wishes well a woman who had just been arrested uh, at being the center of an international child rape ring. Okay, but I got, like, mm-hmm. we cut cor- corporate marginal tax rates. That's situational ethics. Um, everything yeah. becomes transactional. There's nothing worth standing for. Um, there, there's no... <sighs> You know, there's no future to this. So, I mean, right now, I mean, I would ask anybody, what does it mean to be a conservative? What is the agenda? No one can tell us. I mean, say what you will about Elizabeth Warren. She can go out there. She can present a theory of government. She can defend it. She's articulate. You may think it's crazy. You may think she's brilliant. But you can have a conversation about it. I don't know anybody in, on the center right that can do the same for conservatism with any credibility. What is, what is conservatism? I have no, yeah. except, except beating Democrats. And that, that's yeah. not, there, there's nothing there. Um, and you know, Joe, what I find the most remarkable, it's always difficult when you're in the middle of a moment to realize, but I, mean, I, I don't think we've ever seen anything like this in certainly modern American politics. I would say probably in American politics. It is a total moral collapse of a party. And my closest analogy that I can find is what happened to the Communist Party in the Soviet Union, where what it said it stood for and what it was was just so different, it just basically collapsed. Um, yeah. And that's what's happening to the Republican Party. Uh, it, it, there, there's, there's no future to this. Um, right. It's, a, it's like the subprime well, mortgage. And, you know, we can argue how long it's going to take, but you, you know how this is going to end. Yeah. Well, I mean, you uh, you talk about in the book, um, having been a part of the Bush campaigns for presidents, yep. uh, for president, and and that he was trying, you know, to architect some kind of like new kinds of of conservatism, the compassionate conservatism. And, you know, you talk about a lot of ex-Bush people, quite a few of them have jumped shipped, jumped ship like you, you know, Michael Gerson, you mentioned, uh, right. Peter Winner, and uh, even Bush himself looks like he's pretty much jumped ship. He's got a new book coming out about the greatness of immigrants, which is sort of an implied critique, <laughs> right, of the xenophobia that's popular in the party now. But one thing, this is a little bit of an aside, but I want you to explain this to me. Maybe he can ask, uh, serve as a, an example of what's happened. But explain Matt Schlapp to me. Okay, Matt Schlapp, the head of CPAC. What's wrong with this guy? 
How did he become such an insane stooge? Listen, I, I look at Matt, and it's just a sad case. Same same as Mercedes, his wife. Um, yeah. I, I don't. I mean, look. I mean, it's almost like a wholesale, a wholesale, um, you know, cult conversion. But it also oh, seems so deeply cynical to me. Cynical, one, you know. One level is, you know, what has he gotten out of this? Well, a lot of money. Yeah. You know, and 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 power, proximity to power. Um, maybe it shouldn't be surprising. Maybe it's surprising yeah. uh, when people stand up for what they believe. Uh, another way to look at it is what led me to call the book. It was all a lie that when, when Matt and these other fellow travelers went out and said they believed in Bush's vision, they were just lying. They didn't because you can't reconcile the two. You can't believe you can't be believe what William Bennett wrote about Clinton, that those beautiful passages he wrote about how character is the soul of a nation. More important than any issue, it defines it. You can't believe that in 1998 and support Donald Trump today. You just can't. And yeah. uh, so either you didn't believe it when you said it and you lied, or something's. Ha- I don't. You just can't do it. You can't. But you have to acknowledge that inconsistency. I mean, Hugh Hewitt is the same way. Um, but. At the same time, is this a more comfortable place for them to be? Is this a more financially rewarding place for them to be? Sure, of course. Um, yeah. So maybe that's just what it's about. Um, but I don't know anybody that I worked with at Bush that doesn't look at Matt and just shake their head and say, this is a sad case. Um, well, yeah. And I've known him over the years. I went on a kind of a junket with him years ago and I found him to be, he was funny. We didn't get along about lots of ideas, but he's like, you know, he's a sociable uh, character. And then watching him go into this was like kind of jaw dropping. I have to say. I'll never, I'll never understand. I'll never question 1938 in Germany again. Yeah. Well, and I'm going to, I want to get into that particular part of your book in a moment, but I want to bring up something, which is, you know, the, the big, the controversial thing I think that you assert in this book that there might be some pushback against from current Trump Republicans is that the core of the party, that there's, you know, that, that racism has always been there as a animating force. Yeah. Right. And I have to say, you know, I, I can't quite believe that this is a late breaking revelation for you. I mean, it's always been there. Right. And you you know, talk a little bit about having been personally involved in some, you know, quasi race related ads for your candidates. And, you know, there's some mea culpa in there about it. But uh, you're cited in the new Kurt Anderson book called Evil Geniuses, which is about how, um, you know, how the right wing and conservative economists re-engineered the economy of the country starting in 1980 with Reagan coming in to create, you know, the inequality that we culminated and it became revealed, I think, in the 2008 uh, economic collapse, that when by getting rid of the unions, deregulating everything, 
making it easier for Wall Street to trade in the way they did that, uh, you know, and then cutting out the, the middle class and the working class and not giving them any leverage to defend their, you know, way of life. It occurred to me that, okay, racism has always been there on the margins uh, and it was a wedge that you, the right. party could use to get what it wanted. You know, I'm thinking of gay marriage also, you know, as a thing back in 04 during the Bush uh, re-election campaign. But what do you say to this? I mean, you talk about how cutting taxes has always been like the core conviction of the party, and that's part of it too. But I think the economics of the Republican Party have revealed themselves to have been failed, to have failed, that they didn't understand the end game of what they've been promoting, like Grover Norquist and these guys, that at the end it would hollow out the working class in the middle of America and leave them with nothing but this grievance, nothing but this racism, nothing but wedge issues. I mean, well, do you have any reflection on 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 the economic things that you've promoted? Well, look, I mean, I talk about this in the book. Um, 1994, uh, Bill Clinton proposes a tax increase. It passes by one vote. Uh, at the time, every Republican uh, predicted economic Armageddon. Uh, this was a time when Dr. Kevorkian was uh, a big popular cultural figure, uh, the assisted suicide doctor, and they referred to it as a Kevorkian tax cut, a Kevorkian tax increase. So I made a million ads about that, and we won every race in 1994 on that message. Guess what? We were wrong. It launched a, helped launch one of the greatest periods, of, maybe the greatest period of economic expansion and growth in the history of the country. And Clinton was the last president yeah. to wrestle, wrestle the deficit to uh, some sort of uh, uh, standstill. So I think you have to learn from facts. Um, I think that there's been a deeply flawed economic theory at the heart of a lot of Republican economics. Um, in the Bush campaign, we thought that it was a virtue uh, to make it have fewer people pay taxes. So, you know, it was a goal to have a family of four who makes $40,000 a year and not pay federal income tax. Now, I think that's defensible. Mm -hmm. and it's, it's admirable, but I think it's probably wrong. It's probably better for everybody to have Right. Well, and he also wanted to tie, you know, retirement to the stock market. Right. I mean, that was a pretty um, yeah, wacky well, idea, really. But well, at the time, well, it made well, sense. Well, 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 I, would, I wouldn't say I'll still defend that idea. Um, I mean, I think the idea that people should, instead of social security, that they should, uh, you know, put, have retirement funds attached I, I to think, the I, stock market. I, I think you should have a, a ability to do that. Your choice to do that. You'd be much better off. No question about that. That's a statistical fact. Um, uh, you, you would be, if, if, if everybody who had invested all their dollars, who's my age in social security had invested in the market, uh, we'd be getting millions of dollars. Uh, well, that's true, but the market has has boomed during these times you're talking about, and yes, we would be there. But the results of it across the you know economic condition of the country would still be the same. There would still be you know I don't know if it uh, would have you know it's a question of whether the working class would have benefited from that same thing. But sure they would maybe 
I mean, um, I, I, I listen. I think yeah. there's two separate questions. I think that um, the you, you can argue it's another whole complicated discussion. Why is that stock market so disconnected from the economic reality of the country? Right. It really. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But just in a uh, there, there is something about the government taking this your, your money, which they do with Social Security taxes, and investing it at what is it like one and a half percent interest, which it averages out at. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty bad investment. Right. You know, I'd rather have bought Apple. Well, it is, but it's more about the guaranteed quality of it. Right. You know, it's more that it's going to be there. You know, it's I part know. of the. I know. Uh, yeah. I, I and, you know, the social I, net aspect. Yeah. I personally think that there is a compromise to be worked out there that you will be guaranteed that one and a half percent, but you're allowed to invest in the market if you want to. Um, and that you, some of the profits that are made would go into helping guarantee that one and a half percent or two percent return. Um, it, it that people would be better off if, if we could come to that. But it's very hard to have sort of in our system very hard to have sort of logical, coherent discussions about them. Right. But basically, well, what I can just say, yeah. Go ahead. I mean, this is what this is what. Uh, Unions do. Unions take retirement funds and they invest it in the market and they pay lots of benefits. Um, you know, I'm a member of the Writers Guild. I now have a Writers Guild pension that is fabulous. I can't believe it. And the reason I have this is because they, inv- they invested in the market. I wouldn't have this right. if they invested at, you know, social security levels. But it's a separate question. This is Inside the Hive. I guess my larger point is that the benefits of the market and shareholder value and all the things that we think of as having, you know, the financialization of Wall Street and the way that it's mm-hmm. um, separated itself from Main Street, uh, that division over time has been destructive. Um, and people are looking for answers, and Trump honed in on that. I mean, I think that it was like uh, what maybe. Yeah, I don't buy that. Now, I don't buy that. Yeah, tell me, tell me about that. So these same people benefited tremendously under Obama. So um, Obama took unemployment from say ten percent to under five percent. Um, the S and P five hundred tripled. So. If this really was about economic anxiety and economic grievance, they would have been trying to change uh, the Constitution so that Obama could be reelected to a third term. <laughs> yeah. because, because that second, it was a very slow recovery, and this is the case that Mitt Romney made correctly. I think that Barack Obama, um, uh, there were a lack of focus on the economic recovery that should have been. We can go back and relitigate all of this. Um, but it was a slow economic recovery, slowest ever. Um, but it speeded up. And at the end of Obama's term, there was great economic, uh, prosperity in the country. Um, Mm -hmm. and yet these people still seemed aggrieved. So I don't buy that it's tied to this. Um, I I think it is a large. And so you're left with, yeah. What are you left with? Like what, what is the. I think it's more about of a, it then. more. I think it's more about a cultural resentment that um, 
I want to live in America that uh, some mythical idea of America that was different, where I, as a white person, have certain entitlements, and I should expect that. Um, and uh, he, he, he played to that. Look, it is a statistical fact that uh, immigrants are most feared where immigrants don't live. So, you know, when you are surrounded by these people, you see they're hardworking people and you benefit from them and they help uh, uh, country and the economy grow. It's places where you don't have a lot of immigrants that there's sort of fear of them that can be exploited. Um, I, I think it is a fundamental uh, turning on its head. What Trump did was, Trump, Trump ran like the way we used to accuse Democrats of it. We used to accuse Democrats of saying, you believe that there's a finite amount of wealth in the country and that what we need to focus on is how to divide that wealth. Okay. We would say, no, there's not. Uh, we can grow. There's an infinite amount here. Um, and that we should focus on how best to expand that. So Trump, you know, Trump ran on the pretense that to be born an American is to be a victim, that you're a sucker, that there are these powerful forces out there that are taking advantage of you, like Canada. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's a complete reversal. Of, I mean, to be born in the Reagan era was to win life's lottery. Yeah. You're the luckiest person in the world. You're an American. Uh, and for Trump, you're a chump. And I'm going to go out and even the score right. for you, buddy. Um, yeah. And it, it's a uh, weaponization of grievance, of white grievance. Well, I, I, I agree with you, but I think that that grievance grew out of the 2008 economic implosion that had – you know, whose ripple know. effects have now know. have reached him. I don't know about that, Joe. What about George Wallace? You know, George Wallace had 78,000 people come, you know, in a rally in Boston. Um, and if you look at, you know, uh, look at that famous rally that Wallace had in 68 in October in Madison Square Garden. I mean, you can read that thing. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's so much like Trump. Um, well, I agree with you on that, but I'm, what I'm trying to say is also that it unleashed a lot of um, grievance, paranoia, conspiracy-minded thinking. You know, people began to think that the banks were some kind of like global cabal who's trying to hurt you, and all of these ideas began to kind of metastasize across the internet and all the things we know. And then what you call and rightly call all the kind of kooks and wackos out on the fringe, like out the Alex Joneses of the world, started to move into the center. And, you know, that's where Trump found a lever to launch himself in. You know, people be were still there was still a sense something got, became unhinged. And and also, by the way, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren also you know they've come out of all of the you know the 1% movement the occupy wall street there was this sense all around that something wasn't right with the economics of this country with the, with the top 1% owning so much and in the industrial middle middle being hollowed out all the things you've heard i mean i think this is where the racism was sort of a uh, a cover but he didn't have an answer he didn't have a real answer
Yeah, I'm more skeptical of that. I think that, you know, if you go back and you read Martin Luther King, I mean, he ran against the 1%. I think there's always been that. But his answer was different than Trump's answer. Um, I think, look, inequality's greatly increased in this country. Um, it's harder and harder to be middle class. There's no question about that. But Trump lost the working class. I mean, we, we tend to forget this. Those on the bottom end of the spectrum, economic spectrum, didn't vote for Donald Trump. Trump's best group were the wealthiest Americans. Um, Trump did white voters at the bottom of the economic scale, but not not totality, and the totality is non-white. Um, so I I think that Trump um, did exactly what George Wallace did. He said that there, there are these uh, reasons that you, as a white person, uh, are not living the life that you want to live. And it's someone else's fault. It's Mexicans. It's Muslims. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. There was there was a strong anti-Semitic at, at the end of the Trump campaign. With the you know, globalist mm -hmm. was sort of code for anti-Semitic mm -hmm. international Jewish banker conspiracy. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, and what was just so telling to me is not that Donald Trump did this, and I don't think. I mean, I think Donald Trump is just a guy that looked at this and said, I think I, it's what he says about the wall. I said this once and people like went crazy. So I kept saying it. Um, it's that the Republican party allowed it to happen. This isn't about Trump. Yeah. It, it's about the party. So, you know, I compare it to like yeah. what happened in France with when Le Pen ran. So, you know, they have multiple party system there. Macron won the runoff to run against Pen. So, you know, all these other parties, they all hated Macron. He was a 33-year-old punk uh, who, you know, never paid his dues. And they, 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 they hated him. But they backed him because they knew that Le Pen was the greater threat. And at great sacrifice to their own careers, they backed him. That didn't happen here and still isn't happening. And these Republicans have just advocated their role. Um, so so they, they own Donald Trump now. Yeah. It's their legacy. Yeah. This is Inside the Hive. I want you to um, help me with something here. Um, my dad is a conservative. All right. Okay, he voted for Trump. He said he held his nose. He hated Hillary. Right. Common right. story that you hear out there. And his default thing is business and low taxes, right? You know, this is the right. core of, of the thing. And in your book, you talk about how, you know, the, the party and its media apparatus, Fox News and other, other like-minded people have kind of it turned it into tribal, like sports-like thing where you're just going to root for your team almost no matter what, right? And uh, there's a sense of like, even if they see that he's a horrible guy, Trump, and that they might have made a colossal error here, they're going to deflect and project all of their blame onto the media and the quote-unquote radical left, right? We've seen this time and again. How can we get my dad out of that? How can we disinter him from this? 
Well, I mean, I th- you're you've been there. You're you're part of his world. You can you can speak his language. Like, I, you know, I, I, let's get him out of there. Well, I mean, I think right now, um, are you better off now than you were four years ago? Um, so your dad, how old's your dad? He's um, seventy-one years old. Right. So, uh, <laughs> white your, guy. Your dad. It's it's dangerous for your dad uh, to go outside now. You know, your dad's not going to be going to right. a, a football game. Your dad's not going to. It's dangerous for him to go shopping. So, in a very you know, Donald Trump has made the world more dangerous for your father. In a very tangible, real, like there's something out there that could kill you since. Um, it didn't have to be this way. Uh, it's not this way in Canada. If your dad goes across the border to Ottawa, he's going to be a lot safer. And it's not genetic. It's government. Mm-hmm. And it's not conservative. Right. It's not conservative or liberal because Ottawa is actually run by a very conservative uh, government. Um, it is uh, the culmination of uh, the anti-intellectualism, the anti-education elements of the Republican Party, um, and the anti-elite elements of the Republican Party, so-called, that have culminated in this toxic uh, brew that is killing tens of thousands of Americans. I mean, more Americans are going to die because of this uh, combination of uh, political beliefs than major wars. So, um, and, and there's no, Republicans aren't standing up to that, right? So there's this thing out there, yeah. this virus that is attacking Americans. And Donald Trump is making it a lot worse, and we all know this. But Republicans won't even stand up to defend America. And, you know, to speak of my own dad, what drives me crazy about this and what fills me with just disgust is you take my dad, so I'm older than you. So my dad fought in World War II, South Pacific, 28 island landings, like hundreds of thousands of guys. Came back, never really talked about it. My uncle was grievously wounded in, in Europe. Shot seven times, never really recovered. Um, they they took this legacy and handed it off to the current group of politicians, and the Republicans have completely squandered that, and it's a disgrace. Courage isn't standing up to Donald Trump to defend Americans. Courage is getting out of the boat when the guy in front of you got shot, and they don't have the courage to stand up to some fat, ridiculous uh, imbecile from Queens. And it's shameful. Yeah. And uh, it, sh- it should be their legacy. They are killing their neighbors to defend Donald Trump. And it's, uh, it, it's look, I, I'm very comfortable calling Trump a traitor because I really think he is against America. Um, he, what it means to be an American. I don't think these, these Republican politicians, I know a lot of them. I helped elect a lot of them. They're good people. If you were stranded on the side of the road with a flat tire, they'd help. They'd stop and help you in a heartbeat. They live next door to you; they'd be a really yeah. good neighbor. Um, yeah. they're, they're they're not mean people, but there's something here that has been a complete collapse of a responsibility that they had to defend democracy in America. 
and they failed. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing that just drives me nuts and has in the last few years is my dad, he was in the military, very, you know, patriotic guy, but also very good guy, you know, just a stand-up guy. Um, And yet I can't make sense of the being enthralled to this or at least signing off on it and being a good person, you know, just that dichotomy. Obviously, you wrote a whole book about how that's untenable for yourself, right? But I think the thing that keeps him hanging on besides, you know, you talk about the Republican Party building what you call industrialized deceit. You know, we talk about Fox News and all the ways in which they've built an alternative universe where facts are negotiable, right? And in your book, you point to something really interesting. You you point back to this aristocratic chancellor of Germany, Franz von Papen. Right. Is that how you pronounce it? Yep. And this idea that, well, you could justify almost anything if you uh, – if on the other side you could warn people about some radical left that was coming after you, right? Yep. That this presage to the fascism that came into Germany – and now there's been a lot of talk about Trump being a fascist. I don't think there's any question about it at this point that were he able – to be a fascist, uh, he would do everything he could. He'd like that, right? So, but tell me a little bit about, tell our listeners a little bit about this Franz von Papen moment and, and, and what it says. It was in his memoirs, right, that he described this yeah, situation. And, um, Franz von Papen was the German politician, I guess we'd call him. It sort of understates what he mm-hmm. was. Uh, most responsible for ushering in uh, Adolf Hitler to power. He, uh, Franz von Papen represented the uh, aristocratic, uh, powerful Prussian element of German society. And uh, they saw, at the time, a greater threat from Bolshevism, from communism, and that the way to uh, defeat this was uh, uh, the road that, that Adolf Hitler, Adolf Hitler would be useful in this defeat. Um, and even in 1953, when he wrote his memoirs, which you can get on Kindle, astoundingly enough, and everybody should download it, yeah. the memoirs of Friends of Happen, uh, he's still defending this decision. And you could say, like, things kind of got off track there, you know? I mean, like World War II. <laughs> um, yeah. But he's still defending it. Um, right. and, and I think it's just extraordinary. Um, but this is, this is, you know, people say we can't talk about Hitler. We can't talk about World War II, Germany. And I think we have to, not that what's going to happen. I think the United States is stronger society than Germany. I think we still have more norms. I still think that we are, um, uh, a, a, uh, more, uh, democratic in the big sense of it, uh, rooted society than Germany was in the 1930s. But still, um, the, how, how did the you know, most educated, uh, evolved country, uh, as, 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 as elevated and evolved as educated as any society on earth, go insane? Um, I think that's worth studying. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, when, when you listen... When I talk to Republican politicians, I hear Franz von Papen because they all know that Trump is an idiot. They all know that he's uniquely unqualified to be president. 
But they convinced themselves um, that he was a necessity. So we have to go and defeat this. You know, we needed him to defeat this. Um, and it's, uh, it's incredibly uh, naive and incredibly weak. Um, and there's something about it that is fundamentally uh, un-American. And that is, you know, to believe there was this whole sort of conservative opinion uh, that was epitomized by this essay that this guy wrote in, in Claremont called, you know, the Flight 93 election. That right. Flight 93 being the plane that they took down over Pennsylvania, that, that Donald Trump was a necessity to save the country against Hillary Clinton. He said, you know, first, if you read that, it's incredibly racist and it's... Mm-hmm. You know, xenophobic, and basically what he's saying is, right. we need Donald Trump to save us from non-white people um, and Muslim mm-hmm. non, non-Christians. Um, but at the root of that is a fundamental uh, rejection of what it is to be an American. So, you know, I worked like in, in the Congo in elections, believe it or not. And I spent, you know, I was working with this this guy from the UN who had done a lot of elections in in first elections. This was the first election they'd had in the Congo really ever. But someone who worked in Afghanistan, these other places, very wise guy. And he said something to me that really stuck with me. He says, you know, the thing about this democracy is somebody has to be willing to lose. And what happened with Republicans is, you know, that. To believe that if Hillary Clinton is elected that the country's lost, you're really not an American. You really don't believe in America. Because if the country's that weak that we have to get Donald Trump, you're, you, don't, you don't believe in America. Um, yeah. and you hear, you, you know, if somebody like Matt Schlapp goes out and says, you know, we have to save this country, Hillary, we need this, these people are going to destroy the country, they're not Americans. They don't, first of all, I don't think they really believe this. But if you don't believe that America can survive the election of a former Secretary of State, a U.S. Senator. You think America is some sort of like fragile paper mache uh, creation, not a, right. a flourishing democracy that benefits from diversity. Um, yeah, and it, it's it's it, it is un-American, um, but it's also just really easy to convince yourself that because it's like, okay, I've got to do something that I know is wrong, but I know that, but to do this, I convince myself that a higher good is served. Well, you can do that all the time. You know, uh, I don't have money for my kid's uh, uh, operation that he needs, so I'm going to go rob a bank. I mean, we, we, we deal with these decisions every day in our lives. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just incredibly uh, morally uh, flawed to co- try to convince yourself that you have to do something wrong, support Donald Trump, who is an enemy of America, uh, because if my side doesn't win, win, America's lost. Yeah. The irony being that not a lot of other not a lot of other people feel that now 
<laughs> you know, as a result of that decision. Um, having chosen Trump and then got on board, uh, now, you know, that anti-Americanism, as you might deem it, has really had a a really powerful effect and not just psychologically or politically, but, you know, you're talking about the virus, the incompetence that they brought in has had actual real life. You know, it's almost as if he's gone to war with us, it feels like sometimes. Yes. With, with the country itself. I, I think that's a very good way. Trump doesn't, I mean, Trump doesn't care about the country. It's obvious. Trump's a gangster. Yeah. All he cares about is his He's gang. a gangster. And his okay. gang is basically, you know, his odious family. That's all he cares about. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. This is a question that people have asked you, I'm sure, and they know they've asked the other guys. You know, uh, and this will be my last question for you as we wind yeah. down here. But we, as we, as we look over the horizon line, a lot of us think about what's the world going to look like when Trump is gone. I mean, after there's like a global New Year's Eve like celebration, um, people are going to wonder like, what is going to happen in terms of a party reconstituting itself? What's going to happen to the Trumpists? You know, the Ted Cruz's and Matt Gates's of the world, are these guys going to, you know, try to pretend they were never really into it? Can they do that? You know, I mean, they're shameless. They can say anything. But and but you guys are out there. You're you're all a talented, talented uh, consultants and strategists and experienced campaign guys. I mean, is there a future for the Republican Party? Is there room for another iteration of the Republican Party to evolve out of the you know, smoking ruins of what it was, or does Trumpism become like a, you know, does it go back to just be kind of like a Buchananite, you know, circus on the edge of town? What do you foresee happening afterwards? Look, uh, here, here's, we have an interesting little experiment uh, that we can look to that I think is informative. There's another Republican party out there, and that's these successful governors in blue states. So like Phil Scott here in Vermont. Uh, Larry Hogan in Maryland, Charlie Baker in Massachusetts. I work for all these guys. They're all incredibly successful. But here's something phenomenal. They can't control their own state parties. They can't pick a state party chair. And the idea that a popular governor can't pick the chair of his own party is just mind-boggling. I mean, that would be, I mean, it never happened before. And it just shows how deep Trumpism is. So, um, I look at it like 1964, right? Okay. We, African Americans drop off in the party from 40% in Eisenhower to 7% uh, with uh, Goldwater. And they never came back. I, I think there's certain things you can't undo. I don't think that you can undo Trumpism. I don't think that when you're the party that has said it's fine for a guy to go out and defend a, a woman who was arrested for being in a child rape ring, I don't think you undo that. It doesn't change. So, you know, I came across this stat that just blew my mind. Uh, of Americans 15 and under, the majority are non-white. So odds are looking really good. They're going to turn 18 and still be non-white. And what does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean for the Republican Party? It's a, it's, a, it's a death sentence. If the party doesn't change, then the party has no desire to change. So I think what happens to the Republican Party is what happened to it in California. So California was the beating heart of the Republican Party. It was the electoral citadel. Now their party's in third place. Right. And it's not even relevant in any sort of ongoing discussions yeah. for the most part. 
I yeah. think I, I think the I think there's really three parties now in America. There's two parties in the Democratic Party, and then there's a conservative party and the Republican Party. I don't think the Republican Party is going to be very relevant for a long time. Um, you know, if you take national health insurance. In 20 years, is America going to be the only Western democracy that doesn't have national health insurance? No, it's not going to happen. Of course we are. What that's going to be yeah. is not going yeah. to be decided in the Republican Party. That That's going to be a debate within right. the Democratic Party between, they say, AOC, Sanders wing, and the Biden wing. Um, so um, I think it'll we just a, a period here that we're going to be in for uh, center-left government. Probably that center-left government will go too far at some point and some logical, coherent, uh, moral and intellectually defensible center-right opposition will emerge. But it's not going to happen with these clowns like Josh Hawley and Cruz. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's just, I mean, these are, these are ridiculous. These are people who have made themselves ridiculous. Nikki Haley, you know, praising yeah. Charlie Kirk. Yeah. You know, these are people that, faced a moment, and the moment defeated them. Um, I can't tell you who it'll be, but you, you can't negotiate with Trump. It's, it's, it's segregation. And when you're a Trumpist, you're a segregationist, and you're always going to have defended segregation. When, you, uh, when we get to that moment, let's say, uh, where there is a, you know, iteration of like say biden democrats that are center right uh is stewart stevens do you have you changed your registration listen i'm gonna work gonna be a democrat yeah i'll be a democrat yep yep you know i have a lot of friends uh people i respect that uh say well you know i can't vote for trump but i can't vote for biden i mean i get that you know i never argue with anybody by the way about politics i never do i mean I never, you know, I never cared what my <laughs> friends cared about politics. I have a whole group of friends in my sports world that I, I think if you ask them who was president, they would be hard pressed to answer. Um, but uh, I, I'm not going to make that choice. I think this is, we live in a two party system. It's either Biden or Trump. It's either Democrat. So uh, listen, I spent most of my life criticizing the Democratic Party. It's not like I don't think it's I don't think it's perfect. But I think the Democratic Party has responded to this moment in a much more uh, legitimate, uh, defensible way than the Republican Party has. So, yeah, I'll work. I'll work. If, I'll work for Democrats, and and I, that's who I'll vote for. Um, it's a party that hasn't disqualified itself. Well, Stuart Stevens, um, if you had told me that ten years ago, I wouldn't have believed it. But here we are today. We, <laughs> everybody should uh, pick up this book. It was all a lie how the Republican Party became Donald Trump. It's a fantastic uh, primer and preview uh, that you should read to get your uh, head in the game and understand what's at stake in this election. Thank you so much for coming on Inside the Hive. All right. Thank you, Joe. Really enjoyed it. Thanks to my co-host, Joe Hagan. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive. You can get these on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. 
Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their great production work. And of course, thanks to our sponsors. Please support them the way you support this podcast. We will see you next week.